Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Uh, good morning. Uh, I need to apologise because I did put a PowerPoint together. It was a fantastic one too, but I think I forgot to send it actually to Mel. And uh, I tried to get it this morning, but my daughter was still fast asleep, so... Um, I was given the the topic, I guess, of the miracles in the Gospel of Mark, and I may have misunderstood Troy, actually, because I I looked on the schedule and there's all these passages, and uh, being probably more an an expositional type of of speaker, I just chose one of those passages, uh, rather than kind of pulling them all together and seeing what uh, miracles actually mean. Uh, So I'm going to concentrate and hopefully tell you a bit about this miracle and why Jesus performed miracles from Mark chapter 6 this morning. But I was going to say, if you want to take out your phone, if you're looking for a good book on miracles from an excellent scholar, there's a fellow named Craig Keener who's written a number of books and he ha- he's on YouTube. Uh, he's got a, lot, you know, a couple of channels on YouTube. Now, he is a Pentecostal pastor and in America they call them professor, but we would just call them like a lecturer at a university. And he is one of the world's, I think, leading New Testament historians. And he's actually written a couple of books. One, both you'll find at Kurong. Now, one has two volumes to it. Big, thick volumes. I reckon, and reviews, reviews have said, that these are probably the best books ever written on the topic of miracles. Uh, it's called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts, and currently sells in Kurong for $86. So quite expensive, and it's not like your devotional kind of read. It's not just before, excuse me, just before bed, I'll have a read of Craig Keener's Uh, one of his volumes. One volume is essentially arguing against uh, David Hume's philosophy that miracles can't happen. The second book is really about anecdotal evidence and evidence from uh, hospitals and things around the... some medical records on miracles that have happened. If you don't want to wrestle through those two volumes, they'll take about a year to get through, they're so thick... He has actually condensed them into another little book called Miracles Today. Um, And it's for more of a general audience, and that retails for $36 at Kurong. Much cheaper if you get it on uh, Kindle. So if the topic of miracles interests you, uh, and it should, uh, he is probably, I reckon, the best guy to be looking up and reading Uh, his information. If not, jump on YouTube. He's got a number of interviews in which he talks about uh, miracles that he has investigated from around the world and miracles that he has actually witnessed as well. So as I said, there are a number of miracles recorded in uh, uh, the the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, this is 2 and chapter 8, chapter 10, for example. But I just want to go through this particular one in chapter 6 this morning because it's a little bit different from the others where Jesus uh, feeds a huge crowd of 5,000 5, plus people. 
And you know, as I had a look at the commentators and the commentaries around this passage there, I came across a few who actually dismissed this as a miracle. And they kind of explain it away. What they say perhaps really happened is that when they all sat down, there were within the crowd many people who had actually brought something with them to eat. And there were others around them who didn't. So what they did was they opened their lunch boxes and shared with one another. And the miracle is actually about sharing. On the other hand, if you believe the miracle took place as recorded, you're still left with the question, what does it actually mean? I mean, no one was in danger of starving to death. We've all missed a meal here and there. I don't look like it, but I have. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not a big deal. So why the need for a miracle? And this morning, I just want to mention just briefly three things from this passage, which addresses that question. Why the need for the mir a miracle at this time? So let's read from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, we have five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. That's a number of men. So that 5,000 is not including women and children. It seems that Jesus and the disciples were trying to get away to a secluded place to rest. They're tired from all the teaching, the healing they were doing. They'd just received, actually prior to this passage, news that John the Baptist had been executed. They were also hungry. Verse 31 says they, so many people were coming, the needs were so great, they didn't even have time to stop and eat. And their attempt to find some quiet space 
some quiet time didn't happen because a huge crowd kind of saw where they were going and then followed them. And they were waiting for them out in the countryside. So the first thing to note when we look at the question, why the need for a miracle, I think it's to show us that Jesus is different to us. He was not irritated by these unwanted guests. The disciples felt compelled to call Jesus' attention to the lateness of the hour and the insufficient provisions that they had for this evening meal, which was close at hand, they said. From their perspective, the crowd's need and the crowd's need, it was imperative that they be dismissed. Up to you, Jesus, dismiss them. Tell them to go into the surrounding countrysides. Send them away. I mean, the disciples are weary. They are exhausted. And they seem a little irritated in their question to Jesus in verse 37, as well as the obvious hint in verse 36 that the crowds had had more than enough teaching. It's late in the day. Send them away. I don't know if the disciples are really concerned about the people and their evening meal or they just want to get rid of them. In any case, the people who had followed them from town to town were now an inconvenience to them. So they suggest a reasonable, practical solution. The surrounding villages will have sufficient supplies. They probably thought that they were being helpful. Years ago, Noreen and I used to run the young adults ministry at our, our church. And we would have once a week Bible study. And these young adults, single young adults, flushed with cash, full of energy, would stay well into the night. Noreen and I were both working. We had to get up the next morning. We fed them when they arrived. We had a Bible study. And then we just chatted. Sometimes they would still be there in the early hours of the morning. There were even a few nights where we just said, I'm going to bed, lock the door on your way out. And in the morning, we would get up, they would have cleaned all the dishes, cleaned up and left sometime between two or three o'clock in the morning. It was absolutely exhausting. But sometimes when we went into the wee hours of the morning, there were sometimes moments that were far more important than the evening meal or the Bible study, and it could have just been a one-on-one -on -one discussion with somebody who needed something from God at that point of time that made a huge difference in their own Christian journey. Sometimes you have to be discerning to know when to tell them to go home, literally or metaphorically, and when to actually go that extra mile. Remember, Jesus is human here. He is human too. We know this. So he is just as weary as the disciples. However, seeing the same crowd, he acted differently. Jesus didn't see these people as a pain. He didn't see them as an inconvenience. I thought that was obviously good. That's it. <laughs> is that yours, Troy? No, okay, that's all right. You'll take it. 
Because if anyone needs to have their phone off, you should probably have your phone off. Anyway, uh, Jesus, he didn't see the matter as inconvenience. He saw this as an opportunity to actually teach these people something about God's kingdom. And it's motivated by his compassion for them. As you know, as you read through the Gospels, there are several times when it says Jesus just looked out on the crowd and he was moved with compassion. And the word compassion means he felt it deep, we would say deep within his heart, but in those days it was deep within his guts. When he was looking upon an individual or a group of people, he was moved with compassion. And for Jesus, that compassion always led to action. Despite the obvious lack of food in this instance, Jesus opened up his heart by providing a simple meal. I want to read you a story of one of the most extraordinary birthday parties ever held. I got it from a book from a Christian author. He writes, It wasn't in a plush ballroom or a grand hotel. No, there weren't any famous celebrities nor anyone rich or powerful at this party. It was held at 3am in a small seedy cafe in Honolulu and the guest of honour was a working girl, a prostitute. The fellow guests were fellow prostitutes. And the man who threw the party was a local Christian pastor. The idea came to this pastor very early one morning as he sat in the cafe. He was drinking coffee at the counter when a group of street ladies, he says, walked in and took up the stools around him. One of the girls, Agnes, lamented the fact that not only was it her birthday tomorrow, but she had never, ever had a birthday party in her life. So the pastor thought it would be a great idea to surprise Agnes with a birthday party. Learning from the cafe owner, a guy named Harry, that the girls came in every morning at 3.30am, he agreed with him to set up the place for a party. Word somehow got around the street so that by 3.15am, the next morning, the place was packed with people. The cafe owner and his wife and the Christian minister. When Agnes walked in, she saw streamers, balloons, Harry holding a birthday cake and everyone screaming out, happy birthday. She was so overwhelmed that tears poured down her face as the crowd sang happy birthday. When Harry, the cafe owner, called on her to cut the cake, she paused. She said she had never had a birthday cake before and wondered if she could actually just take it home and keep it. When Agnes left, there was a stunned silence when she took the cake with her. The pastor said he did what, he, what every good Christian minister would do. He led Harry, Harry's wife, and the room full of working ladies in a prayer for Agnes. It was a birthday party rarely seen in Honolulu, thrown by a Christian minister for a 39-year-old street worker who had never had anyone go out of their way to do something like this and who expected nothing in return. It was so surprising these events, that the cafe owner found it hard to believe that there were actually people or churches that would do this sort of thing. He said, if, but if that's the thing, if that's the sort of thing that these churches do, or your church does, then I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. 
we'll have little impact on people if we don't actually open the door of our hearts to them. Jesus could have told the people to leave. He could have directed the disciples to go to another location, but Jesus was willing to go that extra mile to open the door and let people in. As Christians, we should be prepared when called upon to go the extra mile to show compassion and care rather than just talk about it. These people whom Jesus fed, you can imagine at the beginning of the day when they rocked up, would have been celebrated. Like a, a Christian ministry when everyone arrives and we think this program is fantastic. Look at all the people we have at our program. And then when the real slog hits and the real energy is needed, they turn to be an inconvenience or a pain. Jesus continued his teaching through actions, through deeds, by providing for them a simple meal. The second thing to note, I think, from this passage, why the need for a miracle, is to remind us that God is the God of miracles. And God is the God of provisions. This miraculous multiplication is about God's gracious provision for people. The disciples are utterly unprepared for Jesus' instruction to provide for the needs of the multitude. And the objections raised by the disciples are all very reasonable. It was late in the night. We are in an isolated place. To bring in just bread, let alone a meal, just bread, to bring bread in from a distance would have cost a great deal of money about the wages of 200 days of labour. We don't have that sum of money, so they're not sure what to do. And I want you to notice that Jesus actually told the disciples to feed the crowds before he even knew what meagre rations they had. What do we have, said Jesus? You're going to love this, Jesus. How frustrating the disciples must have been when he asked that question. You go and feed them, and then he says, hang on, what do we have? Five small barley loaves and two salted or roasted fish. Do you want to rethink your strategy, Jesus? There is something familiar here, something of an echo from the past. This passage brings to mind Old Testament stories about miraculous multiplication of food. The manna and quails provided through Moses to the people in the wilderness. Stories from Elijah and Elisha, whom uh, meagre rations were brought to them, and through them God multiplied those rations. And what I think Mark is saying is that Jesus is a successor to these great individuals. He is more so. The readers of the story would have understood exactly that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. This miracle doesn't happen in a vacuum. Miracles from Jesus were and should be expected. Are miracles possible? In my last school, we used to use that question as a, a, a sort of a forum discussion with our senior students. 
Two questions I would ask them. Are miracles possible? Have miracles happened? I was actually going to use that discussion here, but I thought, it's, you know, can't really have a big discussion here. Too many opinions. <laughs> but are miracles possible? You know, the Western church asks that question. The Western church asks that question because our theology has been so connected to the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment is about a closing of mind to anything miraculous. David Hume said basically, when we look at uniform human experience, it precludes any idea of miracles. And David Hume has influenced Western thinking and even the Christian church in the West. But you know, in the majority of Asia, that is a non-question. Because in the majority of other parts of the world, miracles are expected and experienced. David Hume basically says, because I don't see them in my world, then they mustn't exist. Again, Craig Keener, if you're interested, grab his book. He talks about that. We should expect that this action that Jesus represents is about God's gracious provisions that have been revealed in the Old Testament through miracles. In feeding these people, Jesus was choosing a powerful image to demonstrate God's gracious care for everyone. It's a promise, I think, that points to a future where no one will hunger again, but it's much more than that. Jesus brings satisfaction and peace to our minds and our spirits. And these things will be the result of his gracious compassion. The third reason, I think, for this miracle is because it reminds us of a simple lesson of our blessed role that we have in God's plans. See, Jesus didn't feed the crowd. The disciples did. He works a miracle through them. In verse 36 to 38, Jesus gives the disciples the task of meeting this particular need. He instructs the disciples, or the instructions to the disciples were to feed the people to count off their reserves of bread. And it signifies clearly to us that the food had to be provided through the disciples, not the crowd. It's not if everyone's just sharing what they had. The food comes directly through the disciples. The disciples, however, half angered, half humiliated, confess their own utter inadequacy to help. We've only got this. And they display an increasing lack of understanding which frustrates Jesus right through his life. We don't have enough, Jesus. We don't have enough. And here's the lesson. Jesus reminds them that they can meet any emergency by the use of what they have, though it's totally inadequate if it's only first offered to him, to be used by him. 
Jesus uses what they have and he uses what we have. Jesus actually took the meagre rations and gave thanks for it. Isn't that interesting? In his grace, doesn't God doesn't push us out of the way to do his work in this world. He works in and through us. He invites us to share in his ministry, warts and all, because his invitation is by grace, not because you're multi-talented or multi-competent or whatever strengths you have. In verses 29 to 30, the disciples, although lacking understanding, must have had some degree of faith that Jesus could and would use their meagre portions because they make the crowd sit down and order in an ordered expectancy. Man, what would you be thinking as a disciple? I know what we've got, it ain't enough, but I'm going to everyone to sit down and prepare themselves for a meal, which I cannot see. By hundreds and fifties. You're thinking at that point, I'm going to look really foolish if Jesus hasn't got an answer to this, this need. And the eyes of the expectant crowd, if no miracle of feeding took place, then I'm in trouble. I'm going to look like an idiot. But this is the risk of faith, isn't it? This is the risk of faith. It happens all the time when we walk with Jesus. We have to step out in faith, even at times when we do not see the solution. But it's not an irrational faith. It's not an irrational faith. It is founded in very good reason because we know who Jesus is and what he's capable of. In verse 41, the loaves were taken up, blessed and broken by Jesus Instead of handing them around himself, he gives them to his disciples to serve. They are commanded to give, and then they are given the resources to give. The encouragement that they are enabled to provide is enough, more than enough, because its source is God himself. And they were all satisfied or filled. A 16th century Spanish nun by the name of St. Teresa of de Avila has some famous words that are often quoted to encourage believers towards works of compassion and service. Let me read them to you. She writes, Christ has no body, nows but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassionately on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. But let's be honest. I love those words, by the way, but let's be honest. When God is going about doing his work, he does not need us. He does not need us. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Our sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God can complete 
fulfill his plan in this world and the world to come without us. He does not need us. Because God is more than we can even comprehend. We traditionally love to define God by looking at a number of attributes. His love, his holiness, his righteousness, those communicable attributes that we see in us in varying degrees, but not as much as in God. The incommunicable attributes which belong to God only. And we say God is this list of attributes. That's who he is. But God is much more than that. God cannot be defined in human words or by our human minds. But out of his grace, he chooses to minister through us. What a privilege to be fallen and broken vessel and to be used by this God who can do anything with just a word or a thought. And yet he chose to use us. What a privilege. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? To affirm his divinity once again, to highlight the fact that God relates to people within the framework of compassion. They weren't an annoyance to him, weren't a pain. Out of compassion, he fed these people, revealing that Jesus is divine. He is who he says he is. We should expect God-like qualities to be demonstrated by Jesus because he is God in flesh. And it also shows us from the Old Testament how Jesus' ministry is aligned with his Father and how he invites his followers, his disciples, to play an active role in his unfolding plan. Can the musicians come back up, please, as I close in a word of prayer? Jesus, continue to grow in our mind and understanding of who you are. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself in so many ways to us through nature, through reason, through morality, and ultimately through your word, the Bible, and the word enfleshed in Jesus Christ. Grow us as Christians in an understanding and application of who you are, and through your Holy Spirit, Shape us to be like you in this fallen and broken world. Help us to be a hope and a light to others. Use us, Lord, to bring about your work and your ministry. For the glory of Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.